So this morning I was sitting at home um, wondering what I was going to talk about this afternoon. And of course I'd completely forgotten that in the teacher wing upstairs we keep this list. Okay? We keep this list of um, what has already been talked about, which I looked at for the first time at lunchtime today. So when I had this wonderful idea this morning, I was going to talk about anatta or non-self. When I did actually look at that list, I realized you've already had a talk on anatta, non-self. So this we will say is anatta, non-self again. I'm sure we all speak about it very differently. At times the Buddha was asked the question, what is the liberation of mind through emptiness? You know, in the discourses, the liberation is spoken about through all of these different doorways. The liberation of mind through faith, the liberation of the mind through the divine abidings, the Brahma-viharas, the liberation of mind through insight. And at one, uh, quite often in the discourses, it's spoken about the liberation of mind through emptiness. And the Buddha answered that a monk or a nun goes to the forest or goes to the root of a tree or to an empty hut and reflects that this is empty of self or of what belongs to self and that this is a liberation of mind through emptiness. And he went on to describe emptiness not as a vacuum, but he went on to describe emptiness as the abode of a great person. And he really encouraged people, monks and nuns, not to think of emptiness as some sort of state, you know, divorced and separate from everything else. And not to think of emptiness as a particular kind of uh, yeah, state of experience only found on a cushion. But he encouraged the monks and nuns to abide in emptiness when they went out on their arms round, when they sat, when they stood, when they walked, when they laid down, when they spoke, when they thought, to contemplate, contemplate that this is empty of self or of what belongs to self. He spoke about emptiness is what remains when everything else falls away. That the understanding of emptiness is what remains when craving, aversion, delusion, ignorance are stripped away. That emptiness is born of seeing deeply into the nature of life and ourselves. Now, I think when we hear the word emptiness, we often have a reaction. Sometimes we flinch at the idea because at times we conceive of emptiness as a state somehow, uh, you know, the opposite of living a full and dynamic and engaged life. And yet the Buddha and all great mystics speaks of emptiness not as an absence, but as a sublime happiness. 
When we hear the word emptiness, at times we think about what might be missing or absent. Um, And we think about what we might lose or be deprived of. And yet the Buddha speaks of emptiness as returning home, as the ultimate refuge, as the ultimate freedom that releases our capacity to live a creative, joyful life. And when often the Buddha would ask, you know, like we ask, well, where would we make choices, where we would make decisions, where we would find direction, where we would find meaning, the Buddha said that all of this actually arises from the understanding of emptiness. The Buddha often spoke about emptiness as being the mother, the parent of compassion, of empathy, of wisdom, as a life lived fully. Hui Neng, he has this wonderful few lines about emptiness. He says, emptiness includes the sun, the moon, the stars and planets, the great earth, mountains and rivers, All trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell, they are all in the midst of emptiness. Now, emptiness is really an understanding or a way of seeing, describing a way of seeing that is vast, without boundaries, that is fluid, unflexible, nameless. Now, when I first came across this teaching on emptiness, it immediately struck me how radically different this teaching was than the way that I actually saw. That in my seeing, not not only did everything have a name, but the very names, the very perceptions I had, seemed to describe uh, a very fixed reality, It is as if every name I had described or represented a reality. You know, and we use these perceptive names all the time, quite functionally. Tree, bird, sun, hair, body, you, me, I. But often when we use them, we're using them as if they are describing something that is fixed and solid. Separate. A separate reality coexisting with very with very many other quite separate realities. But if we think about many of our perceptions, of course they're not neutral, that our names, the names we use, come with the story of our likes and dislikes, our preferences, history and future. Describing a reality with its moments of happiness, but often with moments of struggle. Sometimes we start to see just how our reality is being built moment to moment, not only by our perceptions, the names we have for things, but also how our reality is being built moment to moment by our moods, our mental states, our emotions, creating worlds which in the moment often feel so unarguable. You know when we say things like, oh, this is really terrible. 
you know, or that person is such a disturbance, you know, or life is like this. I love those generalizations, you know. People are like this. The one I love the best is when people say to me, this is what all minds do. This is what all minds do. And that really takes me aback. I think, when all minds do that. You know, as if there is no sense of possibility. When I first heard the teaching of emptiness, what first really occurred to me that what I was really being invited to do was to unpack my own understanding of reality. To question my own understanding of reality. Now, many, when I went to high school in Canada, in, in our senior year, we had this one lesson that everybody dreaded, and it was a lesson where you had to cut up a frog, a dead frog. But you had to dissect this frog. You know, and, and it was always like this big drama. You know, but what was very clear that when we did that, you know, you had like the bits of the frog over here and you had the organs of the frog over there and you had the skin of the frog over there. And what was very clear that when we laid all these bits of the frog out, it was very hard to actually sense that same reality of a frog. You know, because frog meant this creature that jumped and hopped, you know, and croaked and, you know, did all the things that frog too did. And when we cut it up, where was the frog? I had a very kind of more, you know, much later on, had a very similar experience when a friend of mine died and I, I sat beside her body when she was in her coffin. And there was this reality that existed in my mind of this person, you know, who sang, who smiled, who had a direction. And yet the body was not that person. She was gone. And there was that sense that, I think we all have very many moments like this in our lives when we suddenly realize that things are not quite what we believe them to be. That things are not quite what we thought them to be. That the appearance of something may not be its reality. Now, it's not just the death of my friend or the, the cut-up frog that suddenly made everything very different. It was the understanding that both the frog and my friend had always actually been more and less than I believed them to do, be. Now, the Buddha placed this understanding of non-self, the understanding of emptiness, really at the heart of the teaching of liberation. And that the liberation is born of deeply understanding this phenomena that we call self. Now first, I do think it's very important to acknowledge that we certainly seem to have a self, a me, an I. And as long as we can remember, we've had a self, haven't we? You know, if you look at your family photo albums your family picture albums. I mean, you have no trouble pointing to yourself, do you, and say, oh, there I am. I mean, you don't point to your granny and say, that's me. You know, you don't point to a tree and say, that's me. I mean, you, you, know, you know exactly who you are. 
Um, and our sense of self has a history, and our history or the story of ourself, of course, is rooted in all the experiences and events of our life up to this point. And in actually a lot of ways, our sense of who we are in this moment is really the sum of all of our memories. It's really the outcome of all of our memories. We also see that I, me, mine are the most frequently used words in our life, in our thoughts, in our thoughts. I mean, certainly when we track our minds in a single day, we, we just become aware of how much self-referencing and self-consciousness really governs our thoughts, doesn't it? You know, I mean, you know, if you think about in more ignorant times when it was believed that the whole universe revolved around the earth, you know, and people got burned at the stake for challenging that. Well, we've kind of have a similar ideology, you know, that the whole universe actually revolves around me. And it's somehow me that gives meaning to this. How we, we even wonder how the world would operate without us. You know, how would life go on, the universe go on, even without us? But we also see, just as on one hand, the sense of me seems so solid, it actually also seems so incredibly insubstantial, so elusive. I mean, if you try to search for a sense of self, of me, that really feels reliable and stable and trustworthy... It proves impossible to find. You know, I'm happy, I'm also sad. You know, I'm perfect, I'm also imperfect. I'm greedy, I'm also generous. I'm agitated, I'm also calm. I mean, it really, if you look at it, it seems like we don't just have one self, that we have like a whole <clears throat> crowd of selves. We have many selves. Sometimes our sense of self seems to be really determined by the mood of the moment, the predominant mood of the moment. And you don't always seem to be able to choose, do you? I mean, probably nobody got up the morning and said, oh, you know, it's a good day to be depressed, you know, or it's a really good day to be sad, or I, nobody got up this morning, I'm going to be happy today and have that plan work out. Sometimes it almost seems as if the sense of self is a kind of accident. It just happens. But at other times in our life, we quite consciously try to renovate and create, uh, reinvent ourselves, almost. You know, we decide we're going to become something, add a new belief or a new lifestyle. You know, I had a friend who who ordained as a monk, you know, and, and, and he did all the, the things that good monks do, you know. I mean, he had the right clothes, you know, and he shaved his head, and, and he went out on begging rounds and practice. And he said he always had this feeling, you know, he decided he was going to reinvent himself. He was going to be a monk. 
And he said he always had this terrible feeling like like this old mark was just lurking underneath and he's going to jump out at some completely inappropriate moment. Like he always had this fear that he'd be out on begging rounds and, and suddenly start singing some old rock song or something. But it was like he tried to reinvent himself but somehow hadn't quite succeeded in reinventing himself. Sometimes, of course, our sense of self is changed in the light of new experience. You know, and certainly I see this all the time in teaching, you know, that someone will come into a retreat with a personal description. You know, they say, I'm an agitated person, or I'm an aversive type, or I'm a greed type. You know, and something softens and shifts, and suddenly, you know, maybe they're calm instead of agitated. You know, maybe they're, they're very kind instead of aversive. And it's like that very new experience, and this is actually partially what practice is for, that new experience somehow makes that old sense of self and solidity feel less solid, feel more questionable. But still we tend to maintain and here's, here's the real grist of it. We tend to maintain that underneath all these changing shapes of self, there's a kind of more constant me behind it all. I'm still here. And this is what I would make the distinction here between personality view and what is called mano, or conceit of self. Because I, can, I think you can see moment to moment personality view or the self of the moment is born of clinging to one of the aggregates, to body, feeling, mind, perceptions, volitions. It creates a personality view, a, a view of description, you know, I am sad, I am angry, I am happy. You know, and that personality view is constantly changing because what is being clung to is changing all the time. But even when we see the emptiness of personality view, there can still be this kind of underlying belief that, okay, personality view is empty. We might get to say that, but I'm seeing it all. You know, that kind of conceit of self underneath it. You know, somewhere in the background, I'm, I'm aware of it all. Or we might even go to the extreme of saying, I'm awareness. You know, I'm seeing that, that lurking background piece. There's a, a psychologist called uh, Paul Brooks who put out this wonderful piece in his book, because, you know, scientists are very much involved in this exploration, too. And, and Paul Brox is a neuropsychologist who spent his whole life uh, researching the relationship between the brain and consciousness and a sense of self. And he said, the illusion is irresistible. Behind every face, there is a self. We see the signals of consciousness in a gleaming eye and imagine an essence. But what do we find in that space behind the face when we look? The basic fact is there's no one there. It's a kind of liberation. 
There is no cockpit of the mind we call a self, no pilot. What we call a self is in truth a narrative. A human being is a storytelling machine. The self is itself a story. And Brox used the metaphor of a computer, likening the brain to a hard drive, the mind to the software, and the self is the text written on the screen. Now, I think a lot of people would find this description kind of unpalatable because we can hear that little voice saying, but, but really, I'm still here. You know, I'm still here. I exist, you know, I'm unique, I have a past, I have a future, I have a present, and it's true. You know, and in our life is not a fiction. You know, we do think, we do feel, we, we, we do engage with the world. We, everything we do splinters into so many different effects. You know, we do have the possibility to bring into being everything that is wholesome and liberating. We do have the possibilities of letting go. I mean, we explore, explore all these possibilities all the time in our practice. But the question in the midst of all of that is, that, is there really anyone home? Is there really anyone solid? Now, it is important to remember why the Buddha stressed this understanding of non-self and understanding of emptiness so strongly. Because when there's a me, there's a you. All of the struggle, all of the suffering we experience in our life is certainly bound up in the me, in the I. All of the struggle, the conflict we experience in the world with others it's very much born up, bound up in that story of I and you. So we're not here in any way to eradicate or to annihilate the self, but I think to understand the emptiness of independent self-existence. Now, if we were to ask ourselves, who tells the story of self? That's, that's kind of like asking who grows the flowers, or who rains the rain, or who shines the sun. You know, perhaps in truth, nobody is really telling the story. But it's more true to say, I think, that the story is telling us. And that the story of ourselves is really built moment by moment from the materials of language and perception, memory, experience, that the story of ourself is built moment to moment by the building blocks of the body, feeling, emotions, thoughts. Sometimes the story of ourself, of course, is told to us by other people. You know, when someone tells us you're imperfect or you're unlovable, and of course, our story is always interwoven with the story of others. Now, you can get a sense of this very clearly, you know, because like if I suddenly, you know, if we were sitting here in a very quiet sitting, you know, and, and I suddenly shouted out, Annie! You know, like if your name wasn't Annie, you'd think, well, who, what is that mad woman doing? But if your name was Annie how quickly you would see that surge of self right to the, rise to the surface, huh? 
Annie, you know, I'm here. You know, what, why is she calling me? You know, what I have done. You know, you'd see it really come to the, to the forefront. In a way, our name becomes the representation of the whole of our story. The whole of our story is tied up. I mean, in a way, the name is empty, but in the way that we've charged our name with all of that history. Now, the Buddha taught what is called a kind of bundle principle. The bundle of the body, feelings, perceptions, intentions, consciousness. This is out what is the building blocks of self. These are what are called the aggregates. Now, in a way, these aggregates are conditions that are arising out of a whole flow of other conditions. But on the basis of these conditions, the sense of self is constructed moment to moment. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're in the midst of some big emotional or psychological storm and you come out the other end and you sort of look back and you think, how did that happen? You know, how did that happen? You know, it seemed so solid and real at the time. And sometimes people even say, well, I just wasn't myself. I just wasn't myself when I was in that rage or that greed attack. Now, in this teaching, those moments when we feel so caught in the stories or constructions or the storms, they're actually not accidents. They're not mysteries. That what we're experiencing is the process of selfing. And I I really like to stress this so strongly that in this language of verbs that Pali is, there is not so much a self, but a process of selfing. That selfing's not a noun, but it's an event. It's a process. And that the process of selfing is actually quite optional. And that to know and to understand that deeply is really to come to know the end of suffering. To not know it is to walk in the same circles over and over again that are called samsara. The place of mindfulness is to illuminate that process of selfing. I'll give you a simple example. Because I see this process of selfing as kind of like a reflex. You know, like if somebody taps your elbow with a hammer and your arm jerks. I think the process of selfing is also a reflex like that. But the, the, what is it that makes the selfing come into to movement is, of course, contact. Now, when we sit here, we sit, all of us, amidst a vast range of different experiences and phenomena. I mean, think about it right now. You know, there's sounds that are present. There's a multiplicity of sights. 
There's probably sensations in your body at this moment. There's probably mental states that are there right now. There are thoughts. Now this is the whole range. This is like the the entirety of the moment, the, the whole complexity of the moment. Now if I was to ring the bell in this moment, or clap my hands, you would see how the attention would be drawn to that. And that's called contact the meeting of the sense object, the sense door, and consciousness. And that is where we begin to build our world. And the Buddha said, the the foolish, yes, he said, the world is born on contact. And he said, the foolish seek to pursue contact, and the wise seek to understand it. Now, notice what happens if, if... you know, I rang the bell right now. Now, first of all, there would be the sound and the ear and the hearing. Then there would be the perception, bell. Then there would be the feelings that come very much woven into that perception. But notice that the, the perception we can all share. I mean, nobody's going to say, that's a dog that rang. We're all going to say, oh, the bell rang, Right? The perception we all share, but even the feeling tone in response is different. Because even within many of our feeling tones, there is a subjective element that is creating our world. I mean, if you if you were sitting, you know, here really concentrated, and I rang the bell, you you know, for you that might be an unpleasant sound. You might say, "Oh, she's disturbed my enlightenment." But if you were sitting here, you know, with your eyes closed in the midst of an absolutely miserable sitting, the bell rang. Oh, what a pleasant tone. Hmm? We're starting to build our world, but then we, don't, we go on. And if you were really dull, you probably wouldn't even hear it. Hmm? But then notice how we go on from there. That we start to, to with the, the, our reactions to the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral we start the process or the event of selfing. It's like a secondary reflex. Now notice, when did the sense of I come in? When did the self come in? Did it come in with the hearing? Did it come in with the perception bell? Did it even come in with the feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Or, when did this, or did the sense of selfing start to come in with the, the liking, the disliking, the building upon the contact? Now, it is where the grasping comes in, in relationship to the liking and the disliking. And the grasping starts to solidify what has been a process of selfing. We start to say, I am. I am. Now, in some ways, you can see, actually, we're not telling the story. The story is telling us. You know, we're building that story. The story is telling us, you know. Oh, I'm such a sad person. It's actually telling... <laughs> we may not, if we look differently, it's like not everything is sad. You know, my, my, my hand's not sad. I'm a sad person. It's like the story is telling us. 
and it becomes more fixed. Now, notice when I speak about non-self and emptiness, I'm actually also really relating this too. Because non-self is really understanding actually the emptiness of this building of self-view. But emptiness is also much wider than that. In another traditions, it's called shunyata or, or void. It's seeing the absence of independent self-existence in anything or anyone. That that is the liberation. The view, it's so something to see, we do not so much have a self as we have a view of self. Some of those views are very momentary, formed by what we grasp hold of in the moment, and some of these views are much more historical simply because we've grasped hold of the same things a lot of times. So it seems more true, but it's not more true. It just shows what we've been more prone to grasp hold of. The Buddhist talks about bringing this sense of investigation and the sense of contemplation into all those moments where the event of selfing is happening. He encouraged to bring in the questions, this is empty of self or this is not, uh, or of what belongs to self. Sometimes he used the questions, this is not me, this does not belong to me, this is not who I am. But the Buddha encouraged people to be absolutely relentless in questioning self-view. Because to be relentless in questioning self-view is actually also to be relentless in questioning the construction of suffering, of dukkha. And it's not about denying the self. It's never about denying the self. In, in fact, when the Buddha was asked, he would not go into these extremes of either denying the self or affirming the self. But he would walk that middle path of questioning the solidity, questioning the sense of independent self-existence. And I think the more closely we're able to look at this process of selfing and to really bring those questions to life in every moment of contractedness, we actually start to see that that capacity to do that is a way of dissolving the suffering of the moment. And this is the job of our practice, you know, to actually think in terms of dissolving suffering of the moment and discovering the freedom of the moment and just as you know like everything is a verb in in Pali I personally also like to think that a wonderful way to practice is to look at how what does liberating the moment actually mean liberating the moment liberating the moment from grasping, from clinging, from holding, from solidifying. And in many ways, this is an incredibly practical way to practice. Every moment we find ourselves in any state of contractedness to be asking, what does it mean in this moment to liberate the moment? To find that 
that taste of freedom that, as the Buddha says, runs through the whole of the teaching. Okay, thank you. <coughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.